You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Hello, this is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Victor Davis Hansen, who is a fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University, also emeritus professor at Cal State Fresno, also uh, teaching at Hillsdale College, and the author of, I guess, what, 24 books? I mean, I've lost count. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. That's about right. The latest one is called The The Dying Citizen, How Progressive Elites, Tribalism, and Globalization Are Destroying the Idea of America. And then I think maybe your second book, it's the oldest one I have here, is called The Western Way of War, Infantry Battle in Classical Greece, which I remember reading, gosh, maybe 25 years ago or so. And this one here I've got, I've only got a couple with me. Who Killed Homer co-authored The Demise of Classical Education, Recovery of Greek wisdom, and then a couple classics like Soul of Battle and uh, Carnage and Culture. Welcome, Victor. Thank you for having me, Right Now, I look, I think this latest book, I mean, over the years, your writing has evolved from a primary emphasis on history to perhaps a bit more emphasis on current affairs and, and the contemporary state of, of America. But I don't think that the latter has been missing from your writing at any point. Because even in the early days, you were emphasizing the the importance of classical learning, classical education, and familiarity with the ideas of the Greeks to what it means to be an American and what it means to be a citizen. So do you see this book, The The Dying Citizen, I mean, as drawing together those strands? Because when you talk about the death of the citizenry in America, a, a lot of it is connected to the education that people receive in our culture. Well, I had a general rule that for every three books I wrote on history, I would write one on the application of history to contemporary affairs. So in the early days, that entailed books on farming, fields without dreams, the land is everything. But on the dying citizen, I wanted to emphasize it citizenship is very rare in history it's usually either the person ruled or is either a member of a tribal organization or they're a mere resident or they're a subject or a serf or a slave but the idea that a citizen is empowered to self-govern and to create the conditions under which government exists by the consent of the governed really doesn't exist anywhere outside the mediterranean or before the seventh century 8th to 7th century in Greece, and then with fits and starts, that tradition is carried on to the Roman Republic. It doesn't really die at the local level in the Roman Empire, although it does surely in the national government. It's continued in the uh, East for a thousand years under the Byzantines, and then by that time, with the fall of Constantinople in 1453, the Renaissance is in full starting, and The Enlightenment follows. It's a European or Western idea. And the great achievement of the 20th century, especially in the post-World War II, was the Westernization, uh, that is the application of citizenship to cultures that embraced it, whether through the coercion of defeat or willingly. And so I wanted to stress that point, that it's a very fragile concept, and it's very tenuous because it it requires some knowledge on the part of the citizenry. They have to be empowered both economically, they have to be economically viable, 
they lack the romance or the dependency of the poor, and yet in classical times they were praised because they don't have the desire to have inside private agreements or coerce people in government through their wealth. So it was always considered the most stable and should be the largest segment of society. And I wanted to, to iterate that. And then if that precondition exists or if it's simultaneously, then you have a functional consensual society. If it doesn't and the middle class starts to erode or get smaller or the, the underclass that's dependent gets larger or the, the overclass gets more powerful, whether in numbers or defined by wealth, and then the middle class disappears. And that happened during Alexander's, the Macedonian Hellenistic regnum. It happened at the national level in, in the Roman Empire. It's happened in Europe, as we know, during World War I, World War II, and before that. And it can happen again. Latin America and South America seems to be losing confidence as parts of Asia are. But it, it does depend on an economic, and I wanted to reiterate that in The Dying Citizen. That's why some of the chapters were peasants rather than a middle class, or residents rather than fully developed citizens. So Americans' wages until 2017 had been stagnant, as you know, as a business professor for 12 years. The age at which people buy homes has been delayed, the age at which they get married, the age at which they have children, the number of children. And all of this, I think, reflects some economic uncertainty. The singular or the exceptional prerogatives of citizenship have been adulterated or weakened. It used to be that you could clearly define a citizen from a non-citizen, but both in numbers and in responsibilities and rights. But we have the largest number of people living in the United States, both as a percentage and in sheer numbers that are not citizens, whether they're legal green card holders are illegal. It's about 50 million of them. And then it's hard to know what a citizen can do and what a non-citizen can't do or can do. They're, they they blend it together. So a non-citizen now can serve in the military. A non-citizen can obviously go back and forth across the southern border without a passport. A non-citizen can receive federal benefits. A non-citizen in some places in Massachusetts and the Bay Area can actually run and hold office in school board elections. And as you know, there's a movement now to let residents who are not citizens to vote even. And that's the only thing that I can see that distinguishes a citizen from a non-citizen are two or three things. One is holding office. One is openly and, and transparently voting in a national election. And the other is to go back and forth from the United States through an authorized legal fashion to another country. But that's even that is, I know a lot of people here illegally in where I live that fly to Mexico all the time or fly to Canada and they have no problem. They're here illegally. They have special driver's license that facilitates that, or they use Mexican passports even though they're here illegally. So it's hard to know. And I think that it's eroding further the concept of exclusivity and citizenship. Well, you divide the threats to citizenship into two major groupings. One you call the pre-modern or the pre-citizen threats. And the other are sort of this, the more recent kind of post-modern or post-citizen threats. And as an historian, I found the first ones you know, particularly interesting, right? Because you, you highlight that kind of the default condition of, of humanity is one of 
peasantry and tribalism. And what I found particularly fascinating is that the, this notion of tribalism, which for most of our history was considered to be something primitive, something that we wanted to get away from, reappeared in progressive guise. So is it because we fail to understand this threat or is it that people do understand it, but they're not particularly worried about it? I think it's a mixture. I know that doesn't sound, sound like a muscular answer, but I think it's a mixture of a lot of things. And one of them surely is people are not aware of how a racially or tribally or ethnically or sexually blind meritocratic system has resulted in the wealth and security and success in, in North America vis-a-vis -vis other places. I was in Libya in 2007, and as I was I had two minders on the Qaddafi, and every mile in this oil exporting country, we would hit a pothole, and we'd have to get out and move. The, they were two or three feet deep. And I'd always ask my Libyan minders, why, how can this happen? That you've got, you're just flushing oil and oil revenues, and yet you can't fix the roads. And they, they said something that was remarkable, but I've never forgotten, and that is we hire our first cousins. And what he meant was that we have a lot of tribal affiliations, despite being Libyans, and we don't hire the best person to run the Department of Public Works. We, and, and what they were trying to say is that you in America don't do that. And so that's one thing we don't understand. We're starting to, when you see, for just to take one example, the recent Titan tragedy of the undersea explorer, and when the CEO in that pre mortem interview, they asked him what was unique about it. He, he mentioned that he used a new ca carbon fiber metal-like replacement for the traditional hardened steel. But he said, we don't hire old white guys with military experience from the Navy. We don't want submariners. We want young, diverse, exciting people. And what he was really saying was, I have excluded a traditional font of knowledge people 30, 40 years who deal with undersea exploration and the dangers of it. And I don't want them. And I don't want them based on their gender and their race. And so when you start to do that, you can get good people, but you, it's, there's no meritocracy yet left. And then there's going to be consequences from that. And I think what's happening in our society now, it's not the English department. It's starting to be United Pilot Training Programs. It's starting to do medical school admissions. It's starting to do surgery teams. We're not using meritocratic. And why are we doing it? More germanely to your question is, I think there's two or three reasons. Well, the most obvious is that we're into a repertory stage. So the, 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 the Martin Luther King Jr. idea was that we were going to hold responsible the majority population who drafted the Declaration and the Constitution to their word. They said all men are created equal under God in the Declaration, and the Constitution doesn't mention race. Once we had the civil rights movement from, say, 65 to 75, and then from 75, we had it earlier, but full-fledged half-century of affirmative action, we had... Um, we had pretty much legally and de facto created a quality of opportunity. And I think at the next stage, people said, well, we don't have parity. And then we started to get into very controversial territory because we started to get into culture, human nature, individual. And we said the fact that particular groups 
are not represented in desirable salaries or positions is an indictment of de facto racism or it's disproportionate. We didn't apply it across the board, obviously. If somebody looked at the NBA or the NFL or the post office, they would see people of color, marginalized people overrepresented, but that was considered okay because these had been bastions of prior discrimination. And so that led, I think, after the George Floyd and the lockdowns and all of that trauma to what we are now in repertory, that it's okay to practice systematic racial discrimination, not just to make up for prior discrimination, to, but to ensure a, a parity or what we call equity or quality of result. And that means if it's separate dorms at Stanford predicated by race, if it's choosing your future roommate by race, if it's a workshop by race, if it's a safe space, or it's a separate graduation ceremony, that is okay. Because the, the aim is so noble to create parity. And then the final thing is, who, who promotes this? Who promotes the new tribalism? Is it the working class in East Palestine, Ohio? Is it my town of 95% Mexican Americans or first? No. It tends to be primarily a class phenomenon of wealthy bicoastal, not that picking on the coast, but that's where the universities and the money tend to predominate vis a vis the middle and wealthy and privileged minorities. And I don't know what the motivation is. You can say that the former sees it as a job enhancement or affirmative action to somebody like a Don Lamont, or I don't know, that is something that he has to support or now sharpen. Or on the other hand, if you're a very affluent white liberal and you feel terrible about racial relations, especially the largesse and beneficence that you've achieved in your life, then it becomes a psychological mechanism to support affirmative action for elites or repertory admissions at Stanford, as long as you can navigate it around it. So there's no empathy for people of middle or lower classes that don't have that ability. It's primarily an elite idea that I'm going to use race as a barometer to select people. And subconsciously, I have ways for my children and myself and my friends to to get around that and the people who can't are going to pay for it and i've and that's what i've found is the is a great driver of it why it's being endangered now is the woke is kind of like a frankensteinian monster that is turning on its creators so if you're a very liberal person in the bay area let's say you make five hundred thousand dollars a year you supported all of this but you had the money or the influence or sat camp or prep or you knew a dean at Stanford, you could get around affirmative action, but not repertory admission. So if they're letting 20% of the incoming class of 2026 in that identify as white, I don't know how many are white that identify as mixed, but according to their own statistics, about 20%. And out of that comes legacies and athletes and the children of administrators, just to take one example. And there's about 9% white males of the incoming class. Then there's not enough openings. You can eliminate the entire white working class that is meritocratic, that got into Stanford. I'm just taking Stanford's example with straight A's and perfect SAT scores. But if you eliminate the SAT, which they have done as a requirement, and they de facto eliminated the comparative value of individual GPAs from high school. 
So my high school where I graduated, Selma High School's 4.0, was considered not nearly as competitive as Palo Alto. That's out the window. Then there's not enough room for all of these supporters. And what's happened the last two years, when you speak to groups in the Bay Area, you get inundated with private conversations afterwards. My child did not get into Princeton. My child did not get into Stanford. They had a perfect SAT. They had a perfect, and you always try to tell them, wonder these new systems, they're not ever going to get in again. And that changes their whole, uh, it's remarkable. I've met maybe 50 people and, and they're very angry about it. It's almost as if it's the academic counterpart to the homeless problem or inner city crime in San Francisco. They never thought that homeless people would camp out and, and very good neighborhoods, or they never felt that they could go down to Union Square and have their car broken into and call the police with no response. And so that's a long, windy explanation, but it's primarily dri driven by elites. And it's a response, I think, it accelerated in the last two or three years from a, a proportional representation to a tribal idea that it's going to be repertory. And one final thing, it's very funny how we took, we used to talk about in the university, race, class, gender, race, class, gender. But class has disappeared. When you hear that mantra, it's usually race and gender. And this was very brilliant on the part of the left because class is a mobile fluid concept in a, a very successful capitalist society. One generation does not guarantee necessarily that they're all going to be in the class of their parents. I can tell you from my own family, that's true, both positively and negatively, but race is permanent if you fixate on it. So if you say race is the entire definition of deprivation, bias, racism, and not class, then it's immutable. It's forever. And you can say that LeBron James is a victim. Oprah's a victim. Meghan Markle is a victim. If you can't identify a, a particular phenomenon, you put an adjective in front of it, systemic, insidious racism. And they're dealing with that, even though they're very wealthy. And then they become a permanent constituency of this mo tribal movement in a way that, I, to go back to the East Palestine, a guy in a forklift in East Palestine that might be white, who's never gone to college, who's gone to Afghanistan or whose father died in uh, the first Gulf War, whatever, he's not a victim on the basis of his race. And that means that you don't have to worry about whether you're going to lose a constituency to upward mobility. And that, that's really radical change in this country to just fixate on race rather than class, especially from the Democratic Party. But the, these two things you talk about, right, the inequality that results in the bulk of the population being potentially described as peasants or the peasantry, and then this other move towards tribalism. I mean, it seems like those two things are unique to the modern experience, right? Because you talk about when Alexander built out the Macedonian Empire and the post-Augustan Empire, right? I mean, those both resulted in this stratification of society, right? But they didn't seem to result in the same type of, of tribalism. It doesn't seem like there's an iron logic here. What's, I think there is, but what's really disturbing about it is, if you say, read the first introduction to the Thucydides history, he talks about a pre-city-states society, and what he describes as a tribal society. 
when you read Tacitus or Herodotus, they're all talking about societies in which a person's primary allegiance is not to the state or not to citizens, but to people who look like themselves or who talk like themselves. And so it was a great discovery of Athens under Solon, for example, around 600 BC, that people gave up their regional and tribal allegiances and they mixed the they call them the trites, but they mix how people voted on how people organized politically. So you would have an affinity for someone who didn't like look like you, but maybe wouldn't even live, but you would be in the same political group as far as your representation. They were deliberately trying to break down tribal ties. And that had been the mark of civilization, that other people outside the West didn't even conceive of this, but people in the West were trying to not so much racially in Europe. That, that was an accomplishment of the United States, I think, much more successfully. But they were trying to break down ties that were natural and therefore almost pernicious. And they were to, trying to evolve into the nation state. So that I think you can pretty much say that until recently in, in the West, that was the ideal. And then I think for a variety of reasons I just discussed, people decided that was not an effective remedy that no matter how much people gave up their tribal affiliations, there was always going to be racism. It was insidious. It was systemic. You had to have special people with special training to spot it, to remind society that it existed. It would never end. It was perpetual. When Sandra Day O'Connell say, we're going to have affirmative action, and obviously in 20 years we won't need it, and she supported it, she never in her right mind thought that it would intensify. So it is intensifying now. Tribalism is very scary because we're starting to get a geographical force multiplier as people sort out by regions, red states, blue states, and we're 4 million people are moving per year. And that has some ominous ramifications we saw during the Civil War. If you, if you create a largely white and maybe Asian South and far west other than the pacific coast or midwest visa a blue eastern corridor and a blue western corridor maybe around the great lakes and around austin or somewhere and they are mostly the white population is a minority population and this culture is very different that's not going to end well in the united states and you can already see when people talk well there's never been more hatred there's never been more part of it is this emphasis on geography and race that were separating. And I don't see any good coming out of it. I don't know very many people who are talking like Martin Luther King about the content of their character anymore. To do that earns you a lot of rebuke. I know that two closest people in the last 20 years that I would eat with weekly were Shelby Steele and Tom Sowell at Hoover Institution. And most of our conversations were about how they were ostracized or canceled by the, the liberal community, especially the white liberal community, but also the black community, because they were ecumenicalists that believed in the American idea that even people who had been descended from slaves were going to reach on their own ability and equality of opportunity, and that's all they needed. But when the, when the founders were discussing the American project, I mean, they held up this idea of Athenian democracy and citizenship as the, the, the ultimate goal. But they, they were worried that this could not survive in, you know, a large 
country. And indeed, you know, it hadn't really survived hitherto in, in a large country. Is it just a miracle that it has been able to last as long as it has? I mean, is it, is it ultimately doomed? Is it unrealistic? It is. I, I don't know. But if you read what, say, Jefferson and Tocqueville said, Tocqueville writing in 1832, Democracy in America, and Jefferson writing on his day book or letters, he said it won't work when you pile everybody up into a city. And Tocqueville said that there it was kind of pre-Frederick Jackson Turner, there was a safety valve, and that was this huge continent where people went west or they had 40 acres and a mule, or they were there were ways to be self-sustaining and economically viable for a large number of people. There was no primogeniture, there was no serfdom as had been in Europe. And so when people were disenchanted or they were unable to participate in the body politic, they could always have a mechanism to be self-sufficient in the tongues and rural. And, and of course, Aristotle in the politics talks about why the rural democracy or the idea that people have a physical component and they don't, he calls them agora loungers. They're not just sitting in the city and, and absorbed with politics. It becomes incidental rather than essential to who they are. And that's a, a very powerful strain. And when you look at the United States today and you look at the number of people who live in a rural environment are much less, I think 1% of the population is involved in farming. And in addition to that, I, the number of people who are self-employed, which is very important, is shrinking. I, I think one out of three people works for some sort of government. So when you get a dependent class, an urban class, it's much more volatile and it's much less skeptical and it's much more divorced from nature. And these were things that classical authors from Cicero and Cato to earlier to Thucydides and Aristotle said were essential. You can see it with social media, what they were worried about is this. Herodotus said at one point, it's easier to get 30,000 Athenians to vote for a risky operation than it is a few oligarchs in Sparta. And what he meant was these waves that we see with hysteria, whether you know, we, we get in these fads that we saw it with the lockdown and the wokeism. And, but we also see it with canceling people or sudden phenomenon that all we suddenly embrace. If we had this conversation 10 years ago, nobody, even though there was artificial intelligence, it wasn't the big thing. Or the transgendered movement was an old ancient idea that was valid, that there were people that had various calibrations of transvestism, transsexual. It was never suggested that 0.3% of the population that was clinically diagnosed would leap up to 5% claiming 10% in some surveys. And this bothered people in antiquity that an urban, radically democratic society without real checks on popular expression could be very mercurial and dangerous and, and not sustainable. We're the world's largest, uh, the longest surviving democracy. Yeah. There's no guarantee that that we are to continue. But I mean, look, I mean, we're not going to go back to having more than one or 2% of the population working the land, right? We're not going to have citizen soldiers who fight periodically all the way through their old, old age. We're not going to have a world where our legislature can vote on every single piece of, of governmental action. But I think there were things we, we, we could do. Uh, for example, during the lockdowns, why in the world, when I went into my local town, 
Mr. I'm taking a name so I won't identify people. Mr. and Mrs. Lopez's flower shop or Mr. and Mrs. Garcia's shoe store was shut down and they went broke or their restaurant. But I could go to Walmart and buy shoes and flowers with impunity or Target or Home Depot. And so I understand the idea that they're more efficient, but we really enacted policies that were punitive to middle-class autonomous citizens. And then we don't have any civics program. I, I grew up, I think, in, I think I could say that the, the schools I went to high school, before high school, were about 10% white and 90% Mexican-American. But we did things that would get a person fired. We, we all had to, every morning, call on another student to challenge them. This is first, second, third grade. God bless America, America the Beautiful. I say that you were going to read Sing American Beautiful, and we all had to sing. We had a repertoire, all of us, of about 30 songs. And then we had red letter dates every day. The teacher would have on the board, today is the day of D-Day. Today is the day of Lexington and Concord. As a teacher of 40 years, if I said Lexington and Concord, or I said Shiloh, nobody knows what they are. But people actually had a rudimentary knowledge of the elements of citizenship and their history and their protocols and their songs and their traditions. Nobody ever thought that Beautiful Dream or, or any of these songs were necessarily utopian or perfect, but nobody, in, when we would read or study music, nobody said, well, who was the oppressor and who was the oppressed? And art is not for art. And so a lot of the reference of civic education that can substitute for the earlier de facto rural autonomy and cohesiveness are gone. And they're gone by a construct. We're so hypercritical and we're so bifurcated. And we've kind of adopted a Marxist view of history where it's not tragedy, it's melodrama. It has to be 50% victims and, or I guess 80% victims and 20% victimizers. And we all have to fit those categories. And so we're kind of a fossilized or ossified as far as education goes. And the people who really advocate for civic education are usually attacked. Universities have, I, I think they're in their last manifestation. They're not working. And you have a $1.8 trillion in student debt. And the universities have no moral hazard as far as backing their own loans, which might give them some fiscal responsibility to get students out in four years with a streamlined curriculum. The students are paying a large amount of money for majors that are not valuable or competitive. So the number of the percentage of students, 18-year-olds that are going to college is gradually starting to level off and decline, and the debt is going up, and the public's view of universities has gone way down. Well, I think some of the critics would say that one of those uh, useless degrees might be one in, in classics, although there aren't whole large, there aren't a whole lot of them coming out of the universities now. And in the book, uh, Who Killed Homer, you, you did say that K through 12 education is probably more important than university education. But, but in the book, you focus on university education and you offer up a very different vision of what university education could look like. And it's, it's almost unrecognizable, really. And in particular, you also talk about the discipline of classics. And you say that just like, was it Aesop's Eagle, right? The profession basically is killed by an arrow made from its own feather. Do you think that the decline of classics and the decline of 
liberal arts education are the same things? I mean, are they, is that the same story, basically two different chapters in the same story? Absolutely. Classics is an intensification of a history or a literature major, but it's the foundation of it. And it had a, a much greater burden because it required or centered on two difficult languages, which you can become an English major or a history major without that as an undergraduate. But they're the same thing. They're, they were the idea that you had a reverence for the past. You saw it, as I said earlier, tragedy. You didn't go back and try to use the standards of the present to judge people in the past necessarily. You made moral judgments, but that wasn't the intent of history per se. In addition, through the use of literature and historical examples and writing and discussing and debating, you develop oral fluency. You learn how to write grammatically correct English and stylistically engaging English. You thought you were inductive. You didn't go into a class where the professor said, if you say, this particular gender is evil, the subtext is, and then you, you deduce examples that prove that. I know the left says that, well, that was, it was biased in the past, but I don't think it was to the same degree it is now. It was inductive. And I can remember being at Stanford University with a faculty of left-wing professors in graduate school, all of them. And yet, if you ask me today to go back to those 10 or 12, many of them were Europeans at Stanford, professors of Greek and Latin and ancient history and literature, and ask me what their particular politics were, I wouldn't really know. I had an idea they were vaguely left, but they didn't bring it into the classroom. And as someone from a rural who'd never really been very much and was not as sophisticated as they were in terms of music and opera or going to the symphony in San Francisco or speaking fluent French. And I was treated very well. We were probably not aligned politically, but it was not an issue. There was no political message. It was The message was, you signed up for this. We didn't force you to get a PhD in classics. Half of you are going to fl flunk out. The other half, only half of that half is going to get a job. We guarantee you that if you do the work, you will be able to read and write and master for the rest of your life. You will be an empirical thinker and you will have skills that no one else has. That was their mission statement, basically. And we caricatured that in Who Killed Homer that on the one hand, there were philologists that weakened them because they were not committed to undergraduate education. They were sort of esoteric in the carols all day. But the reaction to that was way overboard from the Foucauldians. In those days, it was Derrida, Lacan, Foucault, the postmodern, post-structural. But what I'm getting at is that I look at people that came out of that system today, people who, especially I don't agree with politically, and I admire them a great deal because they're, it's kind of an age difference. If I see somebody over the age of 50 with a PhD or a BA, I assume they have certain skill sets that was not transmitted to the next generation. And, and I think that's pretty much, and now, of course, in classics, a lot of departments like Princeton have, have, have abolished the Greek language. You can major in classics without knowing Greek or Latin on the idea that it was too exclusionary. Well, you talk about the PhD programs as essentially squeezing out any big thinkers. Right? I mean, that seems like that's not a critique that would be limited to classics. I mean, that's something that would apply to a lot of different disciplines, right? Yeah, I think that was the problem with the university. We just mentioned the obvious ones in passing, but 
this American emphasis, at least in the humanities, on this narrow specialization as if the humanities and history and the social sciences were like science, that you could get narrower and narrower because the narrower you got, it wasn't like science or computer engineering, although those trinities obviously exist. It wasn't that I'm going to get so narrow that I'm going to advance this very important topic that's going to change lives, a particular subset of coding or something that you are the world's expert on. It was more, nobody is ever going to know more about the use of the optative in Xenophon Hellenica than I do. And therefore, I'm going to, I'm going to have on-question authority, and I can write on this narrow topic and get tenure on it and be the world's expert without any idea. But what does it mean to these students? Or what's the value of that in the greater... If you ask that professor that I just mentioned, how far is Athens from Sparta, he might not know. In fact, he wouldn't know. Or if you ask him, can you please tell me why Greek sculpture was painted or why the Parthenon's metopes uh, had a level of detail that you could not see from the ground? Why was it so important that they had wrinkles on the back of the ear that nobody could see? Those are issues that people in the public would like to know about for contemporary value, but they didn't have the skills or the interest in doing it. And that's why they rendered the society, the classical society, very vulnerable to the hard left that came in and said, look at these people, they're privileged, they're aristocrats, they're out of touch, we're going to be relevant, we're going to remake this up into a revolutionary sort of discipline. And some of them, I mean, we have people at Princeton who are on record that they want to destroy it. They think the only way to save classics is destroy it. It's white male, aristocratic, Anglo pedigree. And they are destroying it as, as we knew it, but they're not, they don't have, know what to replace it with. Now, you describe in the book you're teaching at CSU, right? You were teaching classics. And you said that in that classroom, all of the tribalism and differences went away. I was wondering if you could just describe that a bit. I mean, because that seems to be in a microcosm your vision for what good teaching is all about. Well, I guess what I'm saying is I was in a unique position because. CSU did not have a classics part in 1984. They didn't have any Greek. They had one Latin class. And I was farming PhD in classics. It was the closest campus. So finally, I, they answered a letter I wrote and said, you can teach a Latin class. And I, I discovered that all the students, almost all of them were of the lower middle class, Cal State Fresno. And 60% were Mexican-American, 10 or 20% were Hmong, maybe four or five percent were black, but we had a lot of Bakersfield, Tulare, what we would call the Oklahoma diaspora, very poor people that were second or third generation who the parents came in the 40s or 30s. So how do you sell that? Because I had to have 100 students or I wouldn't have a job in four classes, 25 FTE, full-time equivalent. And so when I started in 21 years, we, had, we got up to six positions and we sent over 50 people to Ivy League, not just classics, law school, and then a whole cadre of people to business schools, teaching credentials. And these were all people, first-generation college. And the way we did it was we would say things like, it's not easy to learn Latin. You have to give 2,000 hours of your time. Let's think about how many hours you have a year, 40-hour week times 52. It's almost your whole time. Greek is even more. So how are we going to get around this? 
And we have to make special exceptions for all of us. And that means if somebody comes up to me and says, hey, Professor Hansen, I'm moving my apartment. Can I borrow your truck? Yes, take it. Or that means, would you go to my sister's 16th birthday party in Delano? Yes, I'll go. And that was kind of exhausting, but we all did that. And the result was it was very successful. And I can guarantee you that those students who graduated with a classics degree or a classics minor, and probably had 20 minors a year and maybe three or four or five majors, but we had, we did have our FTE equivalent. So in a Greek mythology or introduction to humanities of the Western world, we would get more than 25 in every class. So the administration kept fueling and supporting it because it was booming. But the, to get to your question specifically, the result was that there was almost no tribalism. Everybody had a common interest in the ancient world. People actually married of different races, different tribes, different economic levels. And we had a lot of older people, usually older white people, maybe 70 and 80 that heard about it in a, a, a 4 million person population from Sacramento to Bakersfield, they would drive down and take these classes in Greek and Latin, especially. They were very learned and they would teach younger people. I would see an 18 year old Mexican guy who'd been in a gang walking out with a 90 year old Jewish woman and, and moving her in her, her wheelchair and talking about the Antigone. So it was a really wonderful experience. The only problem that I had was that you needed somebody to publish and publish a lot of books. Otherwise, these students would not have a reference to get out of Fresno because I would speak a lot. And I'd always say, hey, you guys, what would it take to get a kid from Fresno State into Harvard or Yale, even if he wasn't a minority, if he was white male, for example? And they'd always say, well, your BA is not competitive. You need an MA. So I'd have to have him stay an extra year or two and learn French and German or We've got to look at the GRE. So I would, I, I must have spent hours coaching kids in GRE or trying to get them into GRE camps. It was a full time, full service job. But, and it kind of got at the age of 49. After 21 years, I just couldn't do it anymore. But it's still in existence and it's very successful. A lot of our former students got PhDs and now are involved in it. Now, how important is it that you learn the languages? I mean, I studied Greek and Latin and it was pretty hard. <laughs> I could get through either 10 pages of Xenophon in Greek, or I could get through 200 pages in translation. And I found that translation was a lot, I could, I could learn a lot more. So what is, what's the special advantage of reading in, in the primary language? And I guess, is there a trade-off? I mean, in, in most undergraduate institutions, you're probably going to wind up teaching most classes in translation, right? Now, that, that's a very good question. And I, that was something that I never saw. So I think what you're talking about is something that I had to make a decision about. When I had a student that liked classics, would I give them an independent study? Because I was giving eight or 10 a, a semester plus four classes. Would I take a student and say, you know what? There are seven plays of Aeschylus, seven of Sophocles, and 19 of Euripides, and 11 of Aristophanes. Let's rapid read all of them in English so you have reference of all of them, and you can understand the playwright, their importance. Or would I take that same student and said, I'm going to read the Antigone and the Oedipus in Greek with you for the whole year. And obviously you want both, but 
you pay a price for all the time you and what are the benefits the benefits are that you really can't understand the antigone because when you see the vocabulary in greek you immediately can compare it to other playwrights who are using the same vocabulary or the same grammatical uh, structure or syntax you can see how hard it is to write in say dactylic hexameter if you're epic poem or iambic pentameter if you're a playwright trochees and the the words can suggest nuances of meaning that's impossible to pick up that's true of any language the other thing is the way we teach english today the way i learned it i never learned it properly so when i was 18 i wanted to learn greek i went to the yale summer language institute and i didn't know what a direct object was i i was selma high school I didn't know what a subject and predicate were, at least. And so how would you know what an accusative or nominative is if you don't know their English equivalents? But once I started taking Latin and Greek, I just realized how English worked. And I noticed something. I noticed you don't repeat vocabulary. You mix up polysyllabic Latinate words with Anglo-Saxon monosyllabic for variety. And you do all of these really rich things in your spoken and written language that you're not aware of. I had nobody had ever told and so when you try to write like cicero and that's what we were taught undergraduate and graduate school it has an effect on english and i know that whatever success i've had in writing i think it's almost all attributable to classics the ability to organize ideas to write to bring up metaphors or similes sometimes i overdo it and I think I, uh, we trained a lot of people to be very, very conversant, both orally and in writing and prose style, because of classics. And I don't know where you quite get that, but you pay a high price. We had a lot of people that were stressed out. Their parents would come to me and say, Professor Hansen, my son has to work at night at the service station, taking a salary away. What is this Greek stuff? What's, what can he do with it? I have a welding shop. That was a constant. And out of that conundrum, we kind of, John Heath, who was a brilliant guy at the Santa Clara University, and he had the same challenges, a little bit higher socioeconomic group at Santa Clara, but that's why we wrote Who Killed Homer. We were trying to remind the profession that it would die if more people didn't get interest in it, both the general public and the types of books that were being published. We would go, just to, for the research for that book, we would go to Barnes & Noble, and we would look at ancient history, if they had it, and we would look at all the names, and then we would ask ourselves, how many of those have PhDs that are working at universities? And we noticed that fewer and fewer PhDs were writing books that people would buy it for. And they, they were journalists, or they were BAs in classics, or English, but was sad because they had just given up on that aspect of their profession, that advocacy. The, the final irony, I guess, is that very left-wing people who were supposedly men and women of the people created even a more esoteric and narrow vocabulary and exclusionary vocabulary by getting rid of Greek and getting making fun of Western Civ or not thinking it's important. And the way they talk and write is like this. Nobody can understand it. It's almost like hieroglyphics, the new academic ease. So I don't know where all this leads to, but I think part of it, you have to be careful as you get older. You know, Horace said that we, a bad generation, worse than our grandparents, are going to produce a generation worse than us. 
And there's a whole warning about that in classics. But I do think that by quantitative measures, you probably know it better as a professor of business or finance, that you can measure the decline in knowledge of one generation. To, and it, do, it doesn't seem to be going up as it had been in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And that's really worrisome because we have competitors in business and things. They don't adopt our methodology, especially in the non-West. We have a kind of a commissar system. We're investing a lot of ca capital, time, labor, income in monitoring or regulating the universe, DEI, ESG, but we're not in productivity, which is in the university parlance is education, better educated students that, that you can quantifiably confirm. And that's, I'm really worried about that. I don't know what the result will be. Well, I mean, one of the, the advantages that I think you, you talk about in, in the Who Killed Homer book of a broad liberal arts education is that it does help us to appreciate the broader humanity that we all share. But you also are cons quite concerned about uh, this trend towards globalism. So could, I was wondering if, I mean, it seems like the, the, the tribalism and the globalism are somewhat in tension, right? Because globalism is, is about dissolving the boundaries between countries and, and uh, tribalism is about creating schisms within countries. Well, I've been trying to not fall into a kind of a Pavlovian, all globalism is bad. Obviously, if somebody in the Amazon basin has access to antibiotics, or you can call your sister in Vietnam, that's a wonderful thing. Interconnectivity, and in theory, it will break down national, or racial, or tribal barriers through this greater community. But unfortunately, there's a long history that in constitutional systems that at the core that expand rapidly out and try, if you have Dickensian London, why the British army is in India, or you have the United States in total chaos in the 1960s and a cultural evolution, and then we're in Vietnam. I do believe that in terms of fashion and food, that an individual parochial cultures and civilizations have a lot of value. And we are creating an American-led Everybody's going to talk the same. If I go to Greece into a village, I, I lived there for three years, but when I first went there in 73, nobody really used the F word. Nobody wore jeans. Nobody had a t-shirt that said Stanford University. You can go to the most remote and some, you'll hear a Greek break into English and say the F word. Or I will be in the Peloponnese and I'll hear a Greek with rap music and not traditional Greek music anymore. When everybody's there's some there's something good about that sameness, but it's also drab. There's no distinction to use that overwork diversity, and so we're drowning out. And the question is, what is drowning out? Globalism is this, I think it's a synonym for American popular culture in many ways. We have the most dynamic uh, culture that has very few prerequisites to participate in, as Europe does. But the more sinister, I think, is. It's an elite-driven phenomenon. I know everybody uses Davos, but when you read Klaus Schwab and the Great COVID and the Great Reset, or you read ESG, or we're going to go after Ireland because they're giving too many breaks to Google to attract capital, and we're going to have an international standard of investment that we decide. Or John Kerry going around this week, he said, 
we've got to focus on agriculture because 33% of carbon emissions come from agriculture. So we're going to focus on what they're doing in the Netherlands, for example, trying to shut down ancestral farms. And I have no problem with that as long as he addresses the three to three new coal plants a month, proverbially, that are being opened in China, which he doesn't do. So what I'm saying is there's a lot of self-appointed utopians that feel that the masses are too stupid. And now globalism in their version is this is the first chance that we can kind of what Orwell warned about 1984. You have Oceania and East Asia. You have just three three massive groups of people organizing. There was a book by Ian Morris, of Stanford historian, that wrote War, What Good Is It? And his ideal was you could get to a utopian state when you had just conglomerates, imperial, two or three big, that wouldn't fight anymore because internally they'd solved all differences. But they never tell you how they did it internally. And that's usually through what we're starting to see with social media or symbiosis between the FBI and Twitter or whatever it is, that is what's scary. And when you get artificial intelligence and the electronic fuel to it in social media and the internet, it's we have the ability not just to give antibiotics to somebody in the Amazon, but to control people's thought in a particular prescribed fashion that's centralizing power and uniformity and free speech. It's really, I grew up in a democratic household. And my mom always said, who was a judge, that the ACLU was a sacred institution. I didn't, I came not to think so, but today's ACLU does not look like it's not for free speech as the way it used to be. The trend in the United States, I think fueled by globalization is that free speech is hate speech. Diversity does not apply diversity of thought. Uniformity is good. Any objection is misinformation or disinformation or hate speech and has to be stamped out. And that has global tendencies. And we're the bastion of freedom. If we fall, then there's no other, there's no other strength or focus or locus of that. We're, we're, if the United States is the freest country in the world. If we're not going to serve that role, I think a lot of people will be sorely disappointed. Well, we never got to spend any time talking about military history, which is that represents the bulk of your work. But I guess I'd, I'd end with this last question, and I have not a chance to read your book on, on Trump. But it, it does seem a little odd that of the various trends that you have mentioned as potential concerns, uh, it seems like all of them were raised by Trump and were incorporated into his platform. And yet Trump is by no means someone that we would characterize as an educated person, right? And certainly not someone that we would hold up as an ideal of someone coming through the liberal arts education. So do you find that a little bit paradoxical that the person who is raising these concerns is not someone who seems well-versed in the understanding of democracy and citizenship and obligation. Yeah, the way I put it, and you're absolutely correct, he wasn't. And so I tried to explain that paradox just as a way of illustration before I do very quickly. I talked to a foreign, a very high government official once in Israel, and he said to me, can you explain to me that we have been trying to explain to the most sophisticated diplomats in the world in the United States why, whether you agree or not, he was saying why we would like 
and we think the embassy should be in Jerusalem or why you should not channel money, all these sophisticated questions. And then they explained it to Donald Trump. And with everybody else that got nowhere, he just looked at it and he cut through it. The person said, I've never met anybody who was more ignorant about the intricacies and the nuances, but more correct about the solution. And they asked me why. And I said, I don't know if that's because he had to deal with all sorts of constituencies in New York, environmentalists, minority groups, mafia, unions. But I, the way I tried to solve that paradox is I went back and looked at the tragic hero in Sophocles of all the playwrights. And he has a great play, the, the Philoctetes and the Ajax. And then it's also a Homeric theme with Achilles, but also in John Ford movies. I went back and I, I actually looked at all of those movies again, especially The Searchers. And then I went into the Western genre of Magnificent Seven or Wild Bunch, especially High Noon. And it's a really continuance. There's been a lot of literature, actually, I didn't realize that, written about John Ford and the Greek tragic hero. And what they say is that when you are in the West and you have a, as Athens became more sophisticated and more leisure and more affluent, given the combinations of free markets, private property, and constitutional government, the success formula, and as the same was true of the United States, then people became not overeducated, but more nuanced and less capable of making decisions that were 51% correct. They had to be just perfect, which is impossible. And they became paralyzed by their own success. And they started, and this is a common theme in Greek oratory, the force, how decadent we are compared to our, and they, they define decadent as unable to make decisions or unable to solve problems. And then in these plays, there's some throwback. And we can see it in our own military. You mentioned military histories. A, a, a perfect tragic hero is Curtis LeMay and George Patton. And what the tragic hero then does is his methodologies and his uncivilized aspects are so uncouth that in normal times, nobody wants anything to do with it because his speech, his diction, his prejudices, they offend people of a polite society. But when that polite society is up against an existential threat, if you're in the searchers and you want to find Natalie Wood, or you're in Ajax and you need somebody after the death of Achilles to go and fight the Trojans, or if you're a bandit in Mexico and you need the magnificence, then you call on a particular skill set and that person will solve the problem. He may not solve it in the way that you want, but he will solve it. The very process of solving it creates the conditions of tragedy. Aristotle talks about this in the Poetics, that his methodology at a certain opportune time when the, the existential threat is over, then the attention of the beneficiaries focuses on the methodology. And they get offended that they ever were in extremists and at least enough to call in such a person. So at the end of the searcher, the problem is solved, but where does John Wayne, he walks out the door. Or the Magnificent Seven, you have that great exchange with the old man of the village. That they say, you are like the wind, you come in and you could stay here. And I think it's Steve McQueen or Yul Brynner says, well, I think they want us to leave. It's to, or Gary Cooper in High Noon throws down his badge after he's killed the bad guy. He's got to get out. Shane solves the problem of the cattle barons, and then he rides off. 
because they're, they're no longer acceptable in polite society because uh, they're no longer needed. Well, a good example is Curtis LeMay. I mean, the guy was a character with his cigar. That was actually because of Bell's palsy, but he saw the B-17 squadron. They put him in front of the B-29 and he completely revolutionized it, saved the program, bombed Japan, destroyed 75% of the urban core with napalm, probably shortened the war by a year. And that was really precluded invading. If they hadn't dropped the bomb, they wouldn't have made it anyway, given what LeMay was up to. But he was so uncouth, and then he took over SAC that JFK said about him once in the Cuban, don't make fun of a guy like that. As he came in during the Cuban Missile Crisis and Bobby Kennedy and Dean, they were just shocked by him. I'll make the cinders blow and all that. And he said, there's a certain role for that person. And he's useful in times we need a person like Curtis LeMay. We need a George Patton. But if the war's over, then Patton, I think Bradley said it was better for Patton to have died when he did because there was no appreciation for him in a, uh, a post-war society. And that's what Donald Trump was, I think. Given the corruption of both parties and the inability, nobody before him was talking about the asymmetrical trade with China. Nobody was talking about the need to have a secure border. Nobody was talking about the shrinking middle class. Nobody was talking about on the Republican side, you've got to support Social Security before you deregulate and cut tax. That was all new, but to get in there, he was, I mean, nobody had ever seen anybody that could cut through things. The first debate, I was shocked. My wife, who really didn't like him at all, and I wasn't for him in the primary, it was a very signature moment when Rand Paul said, I'm not quoting literally, but by figuratively, he said something to the effect, you represent the worst in politics. You combine money with political influence, and I'm here to call you out on. And he said, you're right. And when you came up to the top floor of Trump Towers and you wanted 10 grand, I gave you 10 grand and you've been subservient and helpful ever since. And who would have ever said something like that? But the point was making is that you represent the hypocrisy. All of you people do. And I'm truth in the raw and you can't. And then he introduced another thing to the Republican Party. They had lost six out of the last seven elections, popular vote. They hadn't got 51%, not that he did, but they were very successful on the local level and the state level. They gained 1,500 offices under Bob, but they could not win. And by that, I mean Bob Dole couldn't win, and George H.W. Bush couldn't win a second term, and McCain couldn't win, and Romney couldn't win, and George W. Bush didn't get the popular vote in 2000. The only time they really excelled, the last time they ever got 51, they had kind of a tragic hero, kind of a monstrous guy, Lee Atwater, if you remember him in 1988. And he just took apart Michael Dukakis. Boston Harbor was polluted, the tank commercial, Willie Hort. And they came up with the idea they never wanted to win ugly again. They'd rather lose nobly, basically. And they did. And Trump came along and said, I can win ugly. And I'm going to be for the middle class. And when he, he succeeded economically and militarily, I mean, my God, the Abraham Accord, North Korea, Iran, Putin's the only time he didn't invade. He invaded under Obama, he invaded under George W. Bush, he invaded under Joe Biden. He didn't go into Ukraine. But, we, but when he started to become successful, especially during the lockdown, when there was time to reflect, people said he tweets too much. 
He's kind of garish with the hair and the skin color, and the Queen's accent starting to grate on me. And he's, he has no constituency. And they turned on it. And so he was a tragic figure. And I think he still is. It's very asymmetric what they're doing to him in this indictments, but I have a feeling that he's not going to get the commiserate sympathy that he deserves, and he's not going to be as viable as he thinks he is as a candidate. And that's partly because of this tragic paradox. So he's our Ajax. He's a useful oaf to some degree. Oaf would imply that he's not smart. Maybe that would apply a little bit more. He's kind of like the Antigone who's in the same mold, very clever, very smart person, but exuberant to a degree of being self-destructive and not cautious, but really brings the issue to the head. Of this. It's amoral not to bury a, a citizen of Thebes, Polynices, and you people are, are hypocrites, and I'm going to call you out on it, but I'm going to be so extreme in doing it, and I'm going to be so obnoxious that I'm going to have to exit in that case she dies, but he's not an oaf, but he's considered oafish by his mannerisms. And yeah, you're right about that. That's what you mean. Absolutely. That if you told Donald Trump, just have regular hair, let's work on the diction. Don't repeat your vocabulary. Don't call Stormy Daniels horse face. Don't say even in private that Haiti is a shithole. He would say to you, well, listen, that's part of the package you get with me. And so you like the way that I just broke through with Putin or I took on China, but the, the skill sets are not limited to that. You get the whole package. What makes me effective and why people in the Midwest will come out in the snow at 30,000 is because I will say things that no one says that needs to be said, but I will do so in a very vulgar manner sometimes and get, with, get used to it. I'm not going to be apologetic. And at some critical point, 50% of the people who were always skeptical became 55%. And he's tragic because it's very unfair what they're doing. And many, not all, but many of the, the charges are baseless, but he's not going to get the sufficient reservoir sympathy because of the methodology he uses to solve problems. I don't think we're going to see a person like that in a long time. Well, Victor, thank you so much for joining me. The latest book is called The, the Dying Citizen, but there's plenty of other books that I mentioned, including Western Way of War. Be sure to check those out. They're still in print, I believe. And maybe some other time we'll talk about grape growing and what it's like out there on the farm. Yeah, be happy to. Thank you for having me, Greg. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.